0: I don't know if any of all of you have experienced this, but I want to see because I'm curious. This is something that happened a lot 10 or 20 years ago, but I don't know how common it is today. But you you tell somebody that you are a Christian and the person has this follow up question. Are you a born again Christian? Who's heard that out of curiosity? Who's had that, okay? That's more hands than I expected. I'm not even mad, I'm just impressed. That's pretty, pretty cool. So yeah, that we've we've experienced that where you, you you tell someone, hey, I'm a Christian, they follow up with a born-again Christian. And usually when they ask that question specifically, what what they they have a very unique idea of what a born-again Christian is. And usually, if I'm being honest with you, it's somebody who is like, they, they view a born-again Christian as like this overly emotional religious fanatic kind of thing, akin to like an emotional fundamentalist. Others might think when you say born-again that this is like a very like strict and self-righteous rule-keeping person who doesn't drink and chew and dance and go with the girls that do that kind of person. You know, a person who won't even watch TV, will just play board games, one of those guys. Kind of like an, a Ned Flanders kind of Simpson character is kind of what people usually think of when you say a born-again Christian but what's interesting is that none of those things really capture what it is to be born again. And as you can see by the references I just gave, there's a very negative and very confused understanding of the, the term born-again Christian. So I'll just give you a down earth example of how negative this is. 70% of Americans will claim to be Christian, but only 30% of Christians will claim... To be a born-again Christian. So you have basically here, of professed Christians in North America, less of half of them want to associate and identify as a born-again Christian. That's a dead giveaway that that that's a negative as a negative meaning. People don't want to associate with it. And this is astounding that people would want to distance themselves from the term born-again because the Bible says that a person must be born-again. Uh, to be saved, to know Christ, and to please God in any sense, but be born by the Holy Spirit, that that, that that's, that's a necessary element of that. And so in Romans chapter 8, we're going to see something just uh, really interesting, that there's two different realities here that Paul is talking about. Being lost in the flesh, dead in sin, and then contrast that with a life of the Spirit, which every born-again Christian has, having the Holy Spirit as being born again. And so we're going to see Paul and Jesus' teaching this morning is that we are in a fallen state of deadness that he brings us out of that dead state into a spiritual almost resurrection from death to life into into our lives. And that's what it means in part to be born again. We're going to look at this as we look at Paul's very difficult teaching of what it is to be in the flesh, which frankly, a lot of people struggle with. But first off, we'll look at Romans 8, 5 and following. It says, for those who are living according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Would be unbelievers, non-Christians, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the, the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So Paul is pointing out the I think it's obvious truth, but some people don't realize this truth, that the way that you think impacts the way that you live. So if you're focused on evil, sinful, horrible things, you're got to do those things. It impacts the way you think. And if your life is, if you view your life as horrible, awful, and the whole world is against you, everything's negative, you're going to live a miserable, horrible, ineffective life. But when one becomes a Christian, one's born again, there is there is an inclination, there is a regular habit to try to set one's mind on the spirit. And this is one of the reasons why being, being of flesh here and being of the spirit is so different, because the thinking is different. So when one, Is has the Holy Spirit, one's born again, the thinking is fundamentally different. The way you view things, the way you process things couldn't be any more different. If you're one's a Christian, one is focused on the finished work of Jesus. He died for all of your sins, he saves you, it's all grace, and he's working out everything for your good. And with that perspective, uh you're always gonna have reason for hope when you have struggles. And if so if you're focused on goodness, beauty, and truth, and Christ, and what he's done for you, then even in those difficult times, it's going to give you peace. And it's going to impact the way you positively treat others. And so, yeah, that means we as Christians should be thoughtful. And we should be careful as to what kind of media affects us, what movies we're listening to, who we're talking to, and how that affects our mental life, our thinking life. Because, of course, what you think impacts the way you live. And so Paul is making that connection here. Now, it says the mind that is set on the flesh here, that's a non-Christian perspective, that leads to eternal spiritual death. And uh, we as Christians, we want to set our minds on the spirit. We want to have this peace. But if we're being honest, we don't always have peace, do we? We don't. We struggle. We go through difficult times. We struggle with anxiety. And I don't want us to misunderstand Paul's teaching here that if you are a Christian, that you're just, you know, in this perfect state of always setting your mind on the spirit always always you know come off you know like you never have any problems or never any issues. that's not what he's saying here he's not saying that because you set your minds in the spirit that that's perfect and all the time Uh, I mean look at Romans 7 we we went through that I don't know two or three Sundays ago Paul screams out in Romans 7 wretched man that I am he's struggling with sin I'm pretty sure he's not feeling peace then is he So yeah, Christians can go out of a state of feeling peace Even though they're at peace with God They may not feel like it at times And you know what? Paul has to tell the Philippians He's like, focus on good things And when you have to tell someone to to focus on good things That means that they're not doing it It's like when I tell my kids not to have candy. I have to say that because they have a constant and a perpetual inclination toward sweets. And so I have to say that because if I don't, they're going to, you know, try to climb up and get the Halloween candy, which I've hid from my wife, and now I just uh, divulged it to her. So now I have to hide a new hiding place for it. We obviously have a sweets problem in the Taylor household. So, um, me too, so. So here Paul tells the Philippians here, hey, you know, you, you set your mind on the right things here in Philippians 4, 6 through 9. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer says you know practice say you're going to have peace if you think on these things and so we as Christians we want to have a desire to think about those things our mind gets off track we, we lose our, our our subjective feeling of peace even though we're at peace with God we lose the idea that we're feeling peace and so when we set our minds in the spirit it's a regular practice it's not perfect so Paul is not saying Christians have perfect mindsets but we want to set our minds on things that give us peace in Christ So now here in Romans 8, 7 through 11, we're going to get into more of the difficult weeds of this text, the hard part of uh, Paul's teaching here. So Romans 8, 7, we'll start off right away with 7 and 8 being the most difficult verses here. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's a very hard verses there. We're going to look at more in detail. Verse 9, You, however, not in the flesh, is talking to Christians, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So everybody that's a born-again Christian, everybody who's saved, has the Holy Spirit in them, dwelling in them. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if someone does not have the Holy Spirit, they're not in Christ. They don't have a saving knowledge of Jesus. They don't, they're not saved. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, so Adam's fall and our sin brought corruption to the human race, and so we all die physically, Though we, as it says, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We have a, a hope of immediately going to the presence of Christ, and of course, the resurrection, which he says in the next verse, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you so it's the father raised christ and that's the that's the spirit's the holy spirit is uh is connected to the father they're the one true god the doctrine of the trinity that there's one god and three persons they're working together to raise christ he who raised christ jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you so basically yeah god's going to raise you like he raised christ you have his holy spirit he's going to raise you Now, I said the difficult part about this text is, and this is according to the vast majority of scholars here, I'm not making this up. And I think, if if we're being honest, it's the plain reading of the text. It says that those who are not in the flesh cannot please God. And what that is referring to here, according to scholarship, is non-Christians. Now, that's a difficult verse to wrap your head around. If you're thinking about it, I mean, I I even have some, some Christian friends who really struggle with this part of the bible uh and they and you know, it's, it's, you're talking to a friend or a family member who's interested in christianity and you're trying to explain why it says here that that non-christians cannot please god it's it's difficult to understand um what's going on here it's like well that seems weird that, that paul would say this at first now there is one thing i want to clarify to help understand here just give us a grasp on this paul is not saying that non-christians cannot do good things in general I mean, that just flies, you know, you know, just in the face of reality, if we were to say that. He's not saying like, oh yeah, no, you know, uh, nice people that are non-Christians, like, yeah, they don't do any good. I mean, we, we know of non-Christians who are very kind and sweet and caring altogether. And some of them might even act nicer than even professed Christians. And we're like, oh my goodness, how can you say non-Christians can do no good? I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, an atheist grandma or a a non-Christian grandma somewhere that bakes cookies for the neighborhood, right? I see celebrities uh, who, you know, they have a considerable amount of money and they give their money to humanitarian, you know, uh, problems in the world. And they they show that they care about people. So yeah, we're not saying that, yeah, non-Christians don't do any good. They do good for society. They help in society. Uh, there's there's been some great presidents in the past who are not Christian who who it, it were, were great for society. I'm not I'm not saying that okay yeah all non Christians they don't do good because that's not true. But what what he is saying here we want to be specific because I have friends and family that are not Christian they're great people they're they're kind to me I have great relationships with them and they're just terrific. But what he's saying is something very 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 specific. He's saying they do not do regards with as relates to God they do not do any spiritual good we have to be clear on that and this still bothers people I, I realize the the worry this is and I remember my grandfather who's now past he was an agnostic wasn't sure I, I'm very hopeful that he trusted in Christ before he died but he was a college professor, very intellectual guy, and he would always challenge me on my Christian views and would always, you know, provide great, you know, dialogue and food for thought for me. And he heard that I held this view and he confronted me on it. He talked to me about it. He said, you yeah, know, how can you say that I can do no spiritual good? How can you say a person can't do a good work before God? That's, that doesn't seem right. That seems weird that you would think that. So, well, you know, Grandpa, do you think uh, on the Christian view, is is God the greatest good and he's like yeah, that's obvious. He's a pretty reasonable guy. He's like, yeah, God is, on the Christian view, the greatest good. He is the highest and greatest good, the definition of goodness itself. And so if God is the greatest maximal good and nothing that a person does say someone who doesn't trust in him or believes in him or rejects him, they're not doing things for him because they either, you know, say they don't believe in him or they reject him or whatever it is, they're not doing anything in their life for the highest and greatest good. And so I said, "Okay, well, you know, if that's true, if you're granting that, then how can anything you do be ultimately spiritually good before the greatest good when everything in your life is not done for that? It's done for something else, maybe a need to feel like we're helping people or a need to to, to feel something else. And this is especially true when you consider that God is perfect and his standard is not imperfection because he's a perfect being. His standard is perfection. So why would God accept an action done for him that is not done for him, done maybe even against him in many cases? Uh, How could he accept that as good? And he sat there for a while and thought about it, and he seemed to find my response satisfactory, and I hope you guys do too. And so, but the, re- the reason why though, ultimately why they cannot do spiritually good as I kind of tipped it off, is their heart is not geared towards God. Their heart is not right. It is in rebellion, according to Romans chapter one, it's in rebellion against God so they can do no spiritual good. And I think that Tim Keller gives a very clear and apt example of this when he says, and he writes in his commentary in Romans eight, he says, a man in a rebel army may look after his comrades, right? So he's caring for people in his army. He shows love and admiration for them. He may keep his uniform smart. That's, he's keeping it clean. You know, he's showing that he's meticulous in following things for this rebel army and so on. Those are good, but they are done in hostility to the rightful ruler. You would never expect that ruler to hear of this rebel's conscientiousness or gener- generosity and be pleased by his conduct of rebellion, in rebellion. So his point is simple. If someone does something in rebellion against an authority, even if it helps other people and and, and you show care and love for other people, all those things are still tainted with a sense of rebellion against that highest authority. And so that highest authority would never be like, oh, that's terrific. You're rebelling against me. I'm so glad. You know, it's like a it's like it's like a son who's angry at his dad and he does everything in his life to try to get his dad back. And even though he, he by, by that, he's like, I'm going to try to live a really good life to, to try to show him better than my dad. His dad would never be like, oh, thank you for doing that. That's so sweet that you're, no, he'd be like that's messed up, you know. And so uh, a similar way, that's that's how it is when we someone rejects God as the greatest and ultimate authority. God's not pleased by that he's not pleased by rebellion especially since he's offered us jesus christ as a gracious gift to have eternal salvation and when people reject that infinite gift it, god cannot spiritually accept what their lives are as as good or any work that they do now that's not the only difficult part of romans 8 we got more going on here another challenging part is when we read god god's word carefully this pops off at us here in romans 8:8. it really comes out if we look at the words very carefully Romans 8.8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a tough one there. Notice he says that non-Christians do not just, they, not that they don't, you know, they, they do not please God. But he actually says they cannot, cannot please God. So then how does anyone move from this state of being in the flesh and then transfer over to this realm of the spirit here where the Holy Spirit dwells in you if they can't please God? And um, Paul put it elsewhere in Ephesians 2 he says non-Christians those who are in the flesh that they're spiritually dead they're incapable of doing any spiritual good and so people are like okay you know they don't consider what Paul is saying here and say so, well yeah well the way they get out of in this state of death and flesh is they got to believe in Jesus they got to trust in Jesus and then they'll go into this life of the spirit but let me ask you a question Is trusting in Jesus, is believing upon Christ as your savior, is that spiritually pleasing to God? Yeah, it is. It seems like it would be that trusting in Jesus Christ, that would be spiritually pleasing to God, right? And having faith in Christ, placing your faith in God in Christ, that would be a spiritually pleasing thing to do. But see, according to Romans 8, 8, it says those who are in the flesh, they're not able to do that. They are not able to do anything that is pleasing to God. They lack the ability to do that. They cannot have faith because that would be pleasing to God and they are in the flesh. They cannot do any spiritual good and having faith in Jesus is something that is. And so they're unable to do that. And so the question is, okay, my goodness, how does anybody get saved? How does this happen? You know, if they can't, they're not able, they're in this state of spiritual deadness. They're not even able to, to obey God or do any spiritual good. How can these people be saved? And Jesus responds to this question very similarly in Matthew 19, 23 through 26. He says in Matthew 19, 23 26, and Jesus said to the disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. People try to say, oh, the eye of a needle is something, you know, in the Near East where camels would, no, that's not true. It just literally means a camel, like a, like a large beast going through a tiny eye of the needle. That's literally what he is saying. And so when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and say, as we're saying right here, like, oh my gosh, who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. It's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. So salvation with just man alone, whether it's the person's obsessed with riches, whether the person's obsessed with power or fame, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. A man by himself cannot be saved. It's as hard as passing a large beast like a camel through the eye of a needle, which is to say it's totally physically impossible. No one's able to put a camel through the eye of a needle. If you do, I have a bridge to sell you. It's not going to happen at all. And so the only way for a person to be saved is through the power of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what's called being born again by the Holy Spirit. God has to do something because we in ourselves are completely incapable to have the the change from flesh to spirit. Because as Jesus is going to teach here in John 3. Uh, three through eight that which is flesh is flesh it only produces more flesh but you have to be that which is spirit produces spiritual good and so there has to be a transformation where god comes in there and changes everything a a dead person cannot resuscitate himself something has to come in outside of him to give him life and this is what john 3 3 through 8 says about this about being born again Jesus answered him, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'unless one is born again, "'he cannot see the kingdom of God.'" Nicodemus, who's a very wise uh, religious leader, said to him, "'How can a man be born when he is old? "'Can he enter the second time "'into his mother's womb and be born?' Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, and water there being a reference to Ezekiel and the cleansing of the heart of water, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Flesh only brings more flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. Like the wind, we can't predict who's going to be saved next. That's, that's, that's God's Holy Spirit power to make something from flesh into spirit so that God can spiritually work. And so we have to ask this, this fundamental question. Why does Jesus use the language of being born again, he also Paul calls it a new creation. He uses this language. Why does he use the language of being born again? Well, what did you guys have to do with your physical birth? Did you have to work really hard to get born? I think I'm with all of you when I, I, I can say I don't even remember it. <laughs> I think that's pretty true. Uh, so yeah, we our our mothers had a lot a lot of pain to uh, to 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 birth us, but I really didn't have anything to do with it. And so yeah, that's that's why Jesus uses this metaphor because with regard to our physical birth, like our spiritual birth, we don't we don't have a lot of effort or, or contribution to that. It's God who makes us born again. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us born again. And there's a confusion out there with some Christians about being born again. One of the misunderstandings is that you have to go through a checklist, you have to go through certain rules, or there's steps, or things you got to do to get born again. So there's a how to manual that a Christian guy wrote on how to get born again. It's actually a very popular Bible teacher. And the title of the book is, Yeah, How to Be Born Again. And according to this person in this book, this is how you become born again. How do we become born again? By repenting of sin, that means we are willing to change our way of living. Now the problem with that is that repenting of sin and being willing to change your life, those things are spiritually pleasing to God. But Romans 8 8 has just kind of smacked us in the face and said, if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. So you see, the problem here is that there can be no guide to being born again. A spiritual dead person cannot resuscitate themselves. They are in the flesh, they are unable. Now, it is certainly true that a born again person will trust in Christ, they will repent, they will be wanting to live and change their lives. But you see, that doesn't make somebody born again. Like, what's going on? Here's the difference. It's a result of already being born again. So faith and repentance comes as a result of God changing you from the inside out, and you are dead and completely unable in the flesh of your sin. And then God comes to take that flesh and brings the Holy Spirit and brings you from death to life. And this happens in a single moment. It's not like oh I'm born you know I'm born again and I'm just like chilling out and like thirty years later I'm like I believe you know. It's an instantaneous moment where God works in our heart and we trust in Christ. As soon as we're born again. Uh, This is how the late uh, theologian R.C. Sproul put it. We do not believe in order to be born again, we are born again in order that we may believe. And that's hard for us to hear as hardworking Americans. You know, the only thing we hate more than someone telling us to do something is someone telling us there's nothing you can do to save yourself. We don't like that. And so, you know, Jesus uh, and Paul come along and says that, no, that's not true. You can't save yourself. There's actually literally nothing you can do to make yourself born again. And we're like, man, that's tough. You know, because people think that Christianity is all about good people getting better and better every day. But Christianity is not about that. Christianity is about God taking dead people and making them alive it's not about a moral uh reformation it's about a mortal resurrection from death to life that's what christianity is all about and so there's no such thing as a person being a christian and not being born again if you trust in jesus christ this morning then you're already born again the problem people have and and i totally understand this Totally get this. is you hear this teaching, you're like, okay, wait a minute, if that's true, there's nothing I can do to be born again, then uh, I shouldn't even do anything. Because, you know, I, I can't. So I should just sit around and wait for God to like spiritually zap me or something and then make myself born again. So why go to church? Why evangelize? Why pray if God's just going to, you know, make people born again? And if, if it is based on what God does, then why even try? Why even do anything at all? You know? And let me respond to this question by saying, well, first off, the Bible tells us, commands us directly for us to repent, 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 what does that even mean? It's like a gibberish word, repent, <laughs> repent and Believe in Christ. This is what it says in, of course, the classic verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The Bible is very clear. We as Christians are to preach that gospel so that people can trust, believe uh, in Christ, and repent of their sins. In fact, the Bible teaches that we're to preach the word of God and that when we preach and tell people about Jesus and the word of God, that is the occasion at which the Holy Spirit works through the preaching of the word to, to make people born again. That's the whole reason why we invite friends and family members of church because when their word is preached, God does a work in their heart as God's word is uh, preached through singing and through the sermon. This is what First Peter uh, uh, 1 23 to 25 says it says since you have been born again not of a perishable seed but a imperishable one through the living and abiding word of god so there's a word of god that is how the seed of being born again is brought about all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass the grass withers then the flower falls but the word of the lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So people are born on the occasion at the timing of the preaching of the gospel or reflecting upon it later, of course. And so that's when a person believes in Christ is when they hear the gospel, that the Holy Spirit works in them and say, okay, I'm gonna believe in Jesus. This is why Romans ten seventeen says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So God works the preaching of the word. And so the only time God makes people born again is through this, the gospel being preached. So we should preach the gospel. We should fulfill the great commission and baptize and disciple all nations. You know, it's not, you know, suggesting a spiritual Passivity here, you know So the fact that it's a work of God Doesn't mean we like, you know Twiddle our thumbs I'm not going to do anything I'm just going to stay home Or something like that No, the Bible says that That we should be active At preaching the word of God Telling people that they should trust in Christ It doesn't justify being spiritually passive We are to pray to God And we are to pray for friends And family members to come to Christ and by the way, that assumes that God has the power to save. Because if salvation were outside of God's power, then why would we pray to God? That assumes that God has He's sovereign in salvation, and that we are to pray to Him to work in people's lives. That's why we pray. And so it it actually this makes us spiritually active we pray for people for god to work in their lives we tell people about jesus we invite them to church um and so we are we as christians this tells us to be active here in telling people to trust in christ the great truth about this is if we know that salvation is ultimately a work of god that he's the one that brings us from death to life not us then what what happens, what results in our practical lives is we're going to be far more thankful to God. Let me give you a down-to-earth example as to why this is. So say you go to the doctor... Which for me, um, I'm like a, a rebel when it comes to a doctor. I go like, if I could, I would go like once every 10 years. Because every time I go, I get bad news. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> it's like trying to escape. My doctor like will try to cut off my prescription, so I so I have to go back in to the doctor. It's the only way they're going to wrangle me. Otherwise, I'm just going to be just avoiding it all the time. So, you know, you go to the doctor, maybe more often than I do, once a year, right? And you, you, go, and you go in because you're feeling sick, which, you know, frankly, is the time most people go to see the doctor, I hope, and some, some level. And so you go into the doctor when you're when you're feeling sick and, and everything. And it's like, oh yeah, you're sick with this? Well, you know, here's some medicine. I hope you feel a lot better. Go home, take that medicine, boom. You feel better. Feel a lot better. Yeah, you're going to be thankful towards your doctor, right? But say you got yourself into a horrible car wreck and you were as good as dead. You know, you're flat line. They use defibrillators and CPR to bring you back. The doctor brings you back and he performs life-saving surgery on you. Okay, and you make a full recovery. Now, I have a question for you. Which doctor are you going to be more thankful for? The doctor just gave you medicine and you took it and you're fine? Or the doctor that performed like CPR, defibrillators, life-saving surgery on you and, and saved your life? It's no question. It's the guy who totally saved your life when you were basically dead. That that doctor, you're going to be profoundly thankful for for the rest of your life. You're like, that doctor saved my life. And so the Bible just doesn't say we're spiritually sick and we're like a little, you know, we're like a little bit dead or like, I'm thinking of that princess bride, a little dead. Yeah, that is from Princess Bride. I saw it like 30 times in high school. They played it every time a substitute came in. Yeah, so, you know, you're like, you're mostly dead. No, it's like not you're kind of sick, you're mostly dead. You're totally dead. You're totally spiritually dead. And God brings you alive again. When we are at our worst, God gives us his best. And this reminds me of this really poignant story of the man and the scorpion. It's an oldie, but a goodie it says one morning after uh, he had finished his meditation this man the old man opened his eyes and saw a scorpion floating hopelessly in the water as the scorpion was washed and closer to the tree the old man quickly stretched himself out on one of the long roots that branched out into the river and reached out to rescue the drowning creature As soon as he touched it, the scorpion stung him. Instinctively, the man drew his hand back. A minute later, after he'd regained regained his balance and composure, he stretched out again on the roots to save that scorpion. This time, the scorpion stung him so badly with its poisonous tail that his hand becomes swollen and bloody, and his face contorted with pain. At that moment, a passerby saw the old man stretched out on the roots, struggling with the scorpion, and shouted, hey, you stupid old man, what's wrong with you? Only a fool would risk his life for the sake of an ugly, evil creature. Don't you know that you could kill yourself trying to save that ungrateful scorpion? The old man turned his head looking into the stranger's eyes and he said calmly, my friend, just because it is a scorpion's nature to sting, scorpion's nature to sting, that does not change my nature to save. And see, you and I are like scorpions and we're in the flesh, hopelessly lost, unable to please God. We could only save, we could never save ourselves and we are not even helping God. We're stinging him. Hurting him, anybody he sends into our lives, when we're in that state, we will often be rude to them, as I was as a non Christian, trying to help us. And of course, the Bible teaches that, that Christ was stung for us on the cross for our salvation. And that's what he did for us. And so, you know, how, how does God respond to our rebellion and him dying for our sins? He comes down, he swoops down, and he saves us. He brings us from death to life. He, brings, he gives us sight when we were spiritually blind and lost. That's why I love the lyrics to my favorite song. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. I did not cure my spiritual blindness. That was God who did that. That God and God alone. We would never believe in Christ. We would never see that it was even the right thing to do. If it were not for the grace of God. But... It is, it is worse than that. We would not even open our hearts and our minds to even hear the gospel if it were not for the mercy and the grace of God. If it were not from God bringing us to be born again, we would never hear the message of the gospel and come to him. This is how it is put in Acts 16, 14 with opening of the heart here having this happen. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. She didn't do it on her own. She couldn't. If she were on her own, she'd be in the flesh. She could not please God. But the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And I absolutely love the story of Lydia in the Bible. Because it reminds me of me. Before I was born again, before I was saved, I went to church a bunch of times growing up, tons of times. I could remember. Going there, and uh, I hated going to church so much. More than anything, I would, I would hope and I would pray to a God I was in rebellion against that I wouldn't go to church. You know, you sit in the bed and you wait till like it's like 11. No, there's no way it's 11 o'clock that you're going to church. Your parents are we sleeping in, right? So I would hope for that because I hate going to church. I hated going to church so much. I would go, but when I did go, I hated everything about it. I hated. I would like want to run off to the bathroom. I hated it so much every single time. I hated what the preacher said, and it was wasn't that like I was like cognitively unable to understand what he was saying it was so much as that like to pay attention to any word that that guy said would just be death to me I hated it so much I did everything in, in my power to avoid hearing and processing the word of God I hated the Bible I did not like it it made me feel weird and bad and I just wanted to avoid it and I went to church and I did religious things because in my mind that's what a good person did that's what a good person does. They go to church, you know, You got it's what, what, what good people do. Even though I wasn't a good person, I lived in rebellion against God and hid it for so long. I can remember going to Bible studies with my friends, and the Christian friends, and they were like trying to keep the Bible study on like track, and I would like crack jokes to try to like avoid talking with the Bible and try to, you know, build the time basically so we wouldn't have to study the bible i would like i'm the i'm the master of distraction and not taking things seriously so i used every you know tool in my power to basically uh, avoid hearing any truth from god i was i was just i didn't want to hear it i didn't enjoy it until one evening My friends, who were so persistent, played a uh, debate between a Christian and an atheist on the existence of God. And the Christian's name was Greg Bonson. And while Greg was speaking for the first time, God opened my heart so I could finally hear the words and that they could convict me for who I was. A sinner, a rebel, a scorpion running from God, and I needed to be born again. And God did that in my heart. And now it's like totally different. Uh, you know, I trusted in Christ, and it's totally different. Now I love talking about God, thinking about God. I bring it up all the time, almost to the annoyance of others, I would point out. You know, I always say to like the youth and people, hey, I don't look on the bright side. Christianity is true. Now it's uh, now it's almost obnoxious. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you know, I mean, that's, that, that we're, we're so, I'm so passionate about it now, and there's such a transition. Uh, you know, from wanting to study. I hated reading. I can't even read nonfiction. I can't even read fiction. Well if I couldn't read nonfiction, I wouldn't be a pastor <laughs> so no I can't even read fiction to this day I, I can't stand reading but I love reading the Bible and I was very I, I, would, I would avoid school I was a class clown and I would, I would hate studying and reading at all costs but now I love reading the Bible I love studying it and thinking about it I, I do it for a living that's what I do every, every day pretty much and my friend who knew me in high school like said you're like a new person you like know the Bible and you study it like a new person and that's why it's called being born again because you're like new things happen it's like oh my goodness just to give you an example um A few years ago, I got a message from my old friends from grade school and high school. He knew me, and I was always screwing off in class and trying to blame it on my ADD so that we get a free pass from the teachers. I was a master at that. And so me and this guy would just constantly distract the teacher so we couldn't learn anything, really, is what we did. Kids, don't follow my example, okay? I was a bad kid, okay? So And and so this, this guy messages me, and he's like, so hey, Nate, where you at? You know, Facebook, you know, it's a way to connect with your high school friends. It's not always fun, but it happens right and so, yeah, and so he messaged me. He said, what are you doing, Nate? What are you doing for a living? Where are you at? Well, I'm in Utah. I'm a pastor. He's like, there is no way you're a pastor. You of all people, a pastor? You're the, you're the, you were the biggest screw off in the world. How could you be a pastor? And see, that's what it is. It's like you, you have a dramatic change where, you know, things are so, so different, especially if you were, you know, if you were not always a Christian, you, you have this dramatic change where you, you're thinking and the way you view things, the mindset on the spirit, it it's just totally different from how it was before. And so that is why it's called a new creation being born again, because your perspective is different. Your focus is different. And if right now, as so I'm speaking, you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and savior and you savior, and you want to change your life. You want God to work in your life and you want God to, to be with you and have a relationship with Christ. Then come to me and Johnny afterwards. And we would love to talk with you, pray with you and, and see how God can help you take the next steps in following Jesus Christ. So let's, let's pray that God would work in our hearts to know him and to love him better.